You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. I wanted to do, I, I decided to entitle this sermon War and Peace so that you'd all run out screaming thinking it was going to be really long. Um, but uh, what, what I really want to do is just to have a quick run through the life of Daniel and um, make some applications to our lives from his life. So um, the way I remember Daniel's life is NBD, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius. They're the three kings under whom um, Daniel operated in Babylon. NBD, and another way of remembering it is um, Daniel's um, name that was given to him was Belteshazzar, um, so NBD could be not Belteshazzar, Daniel, okay? And that's kind of the point of the sermon, is we're not to take on the identity that is given us in the world, but we're to hold on to the identity that God has given us. So um, our identity comes from our spiritual home and our spiritual father, not from our earthly home or father. So we're going to recap Daniel's life, okay? So first of all, N, Nebuchadnezzar. So he besieges Jerusalem um, in about 587 um, BC, um, actually a little bit earlier, and then eventually lays it to waste, destroying the Temple of Solomon um, and raising the whole city, burning it. And... um, he takes from the city, plunders the temple and plunders the city completely and takes all the young, bright, um, good-looking um, people from the city and brings them to Babylon. And um, when they are there, they're given new names. They're given palace food, a, palace, a royal education. And um, for three years, they're learning the language. They're trying to um, work out what's going on. And they reject the rich food and are proven more healthy as a result of doing that, at which point all the vegans go, see? (laughs) Shouting their vindication. And they have this excellent spirit. They've got great wisdom and insight. They learn the language quickly. They learn the history and get to know the culture And then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream, and it's about a statue made of um, varying quality materials, starting from gold down to silver and bronze and clay and iron. And um, he says, you know, gets the wise people out to interpret his dream, and they're like, yeah, sure, what's it about? He's like, I'm not telling you. And they're like, ah, okay. Uh, And so they can't work out what to do, so he orders that they all be executed, and um, it's funny, is that just that bit kind of makes me laugh, not because I like people getting executed, um, but because it's like there are some people who really think that their will, their desires are so sovereign, so important that everyone else can just go and die if they don't get what they want. It's interesting, isn't it? Anyway, so he orders Ariok to kill all the wise men in the, in, in the kingdom. Ariok goes to Daniel, and Daniel asks the king to basically chill out. And um, Daniel and his friends spend some time asking God, fasting, praying, asking God for the dream and its interpretation. 
In the night, God gives Daniel a vision of the dream. So he goes um, and shares this with the king and shares the interpretation. Um, The king then falls down on his face before Daniel and seems to kind of worship him and his God and promotes Daniel to ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And Daniel says, I want my friends to be in on this too, so they get involved. Now, annoyingly, the king hasn't learnt his lesson yet. So he builds this great big golden idol and orders that everyone should bow down to it. And um, when when an instrument sounds, it says in my Bible, bagpipes, which I didn't realise were around at the time, but seemingly they were. Um, they get everywhere, the Scots, don't they? And um, so, uh, and everyone, when they hear on the, hearing the sound of the musical instrument, they've got to bow down to this statue. And um, anyone who doesn't bow down gets thrown into a furnace. So, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you more commonly know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, they don't bow down. The king gets annoyed. He heats the furnace up seven times hotter and orders that they be thrown in. The people that take them to get thrown in are the like mighty men of the kingdom. They get burnt up by the flames, just taking them toward, towards the furnace. They get thrown in, and the king looks in and goes, Goodness me, didn't we throw three people in? There are four people walking around. And there was a fourth person who said it looked like a, the son of the gods. and um, Or like a son of God. And um, so we see this incredible, what's called a theophany, a, a vision of God um, in some kind of material form. Um, and many people um, theorize that this might have been a pre-incarnate Jesus, which is pretty cool. So the king once again praises God and upgrades his reverence a bit, um, but doesn't appear to still have learned his lesson. So God gives him another dream, this time about a tree. Big tree, loads of fruit, um, providing shelter for loads of creatures and stuff. And then this tree is cut right down at the base. And then it weirdly kind of mixes a metaphor. And this tree then has to sleep out in the rain and eat grass like an ox. Um, It's kind of weird. But anyway, um, Daniel interprets it, telling the king that he's big and he's powerful and all this sort of stuff. But God's going to chop him down and he'll end up acting like an animal. And so, wise as the king is, he kind of ignores it, and 12 months later, he finds himself poncing around on the roof of the palace, um, saying, oh, look at my lovely kingdom, aren't I wonderful and majestic? And then God speaks out of heaven and um, says, the kingdom has departed from you, and all these words of Daniel, essentially, he repeats and says, you're going to be like this um, beast, and so then he's driven out of the city and he um, spends the next seven years eating grass and sleeping outside. His nails grew long. He kind of became like an animal. Um, which incidentally, if you were writing the Bible and, it, and you wanted it to be believable, you wouldn't write this stuff. <laughs> um, if you were making it up. So... Then we come finally to, um, after seven years, he regains his mind and gives praise and glory to God, having learnt finally his lesson. <laughs> so he, and this is, this is a quote from the end of Daniel 4. 
At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So that's King 1, N. Who was next? Who was B? Belshazzar, yeah, good job. So he should have learned from his dad's mistakes, right? But he doesn't. So, again, he's not the only one, but let's be kind to ourselves and not analyse that too deeply. (laughs) Okay, so he throws a big party for all the lords, about a thousand people. Imagine how many napkins you'd need. It's crazy. Um... He orders that the cups that have been stolen from the temple be used for toasting in the um, ceremonies. So then they use these sacred vessels, the sacred cups from the temple to toast the gods of gold and silver and iron, wood and stone. And just as a side note here, this is going on in our culture all the time. Blasphemy, using sacred things for profane purposes goes on all the time not least with the name of God being used um, so terribly in film and um, even like images of God or um, there was a film uh, no a series called Good Omens that made it into the news I hadn't seen it but it seemingly mocks the the ways of God and um and a bunch of Christians signed a petition for Netflix to remove it, and it was on Amazon Prime, so it was a big joke, and everyone was laughing at all the stupid Christians for writing to the wrong company for carrying it. So, um, But people all the time are blaspheming, taking holy things, and, and we're not innocent of this ourselves, making jokes about holy matters, and um, it's definitely a good challenge for us. Um, when we see it in this context, it's so stark, it seems so obvious. But most of what goes on in our own lives is quite a little bit less obvious. We're a bit more blind to it because it's right up, up close. So, what things in your life, uh, sorry, what things are there in your life which have your time, your attention, your money, Just try to think, does God celebrate the things that you celebrate? And if not, maybe it's time to make an adjustment. So anyway, this hand appears at this party with at least a thousand people and starts writing on the wall. That's where we get the phrase, the writings on the wall, meaning impending judgment is from this story. And it starts writing on the wall. No one understands it. And Belshazzar's knees are literally knocking together. He's completely um, petrified. And he's, he's making all these promises like, if anyone can understand what this thing is saying, I'll give him a purple robe and a gold chain and I'll make him third highest ruler in the kingdom. And um, he's, he's really blubbering. And as with so many mighty rulers, mummy comes along and saves the day. Um, and she says, why don't you call for Daniel? Your father thought he was excellent. So they get Daniel. Daniel comes in, interprets the writing, and um, he he seems to have some kind of prophetic insight into what's been going on. He un, he 
because he says, you know, you've been doing this and toasting these um, false gods. And, um, and it's quite funny how Daniel speaks to the king. Because the first thing he says is, keep your gifts, give them to someone else. <laughs> it's like he's, he, he's, he's, you can almost tell like he's angry at what he's seen and what he's perceived. And he's just, he's not really kind of doing all the uh, reverence and stuff. He's just saying, keep that stuff. I'm going to do this because God, God wants me to. Um, anyway, so, um, Daniel tells Belshazzar the story of his father. So he says, your father was like this. He became big and powerful and he wouldn't um, humble himself before God. And then this happened and this happened. He tells him the story that I've just told you. Um, and then he starts decoding what's written on the wall. Mene um, says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Mene is a word just meaning numbered or counted. Tekel, which means weighed, says you've been, and then he interprets it as you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And then Parsim. Um, and when, that's the word written on the wall, but when he speaks it out, he says Perez, which is, um, it's the same word, but in a different kind of form. So Parsim means divisions, and Perez means divided. And he says your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel interprets this writing on the wall, and so the king gives him the purple robe and the gold stuff, and he's just like, meh. And um, that night, the, the, the interpretation of the word that Daniel gives um, comes to pass. He's murdered in the night, and then this guy called Darius the Mede, that's where our D comes from. So NBD, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius comes in and takes over the kingdom. So we're coming towards the end. This bit you'll probably all remember. Darius is lured into a trap um, for Daniel by Daniel's jealous peers. They incite the king to write a law that anyone who prays or petitions anyone other than the king for 30 days should be thrown into the lion's den. Um, This might have been seen by the king as actually quite a prudent way to establish his rule, you know, like making sure that everyone is kind of focused on him for 30 days. So he signs it, signs the edict, and um, Daniel is found praying faithfully three times a day, where he always has done, um, as was his practice. Um, And so the king likes Daniel, and he looks for a way to try and release him, but he realizes he can't go back against his own word when it's um, been sealed. Um, so he feels compelled to comply with his decree. So he orders that Daniel be placed in the lion's den. And then that night, the king doesn't sleep. He's thinking all night, oh, what's happened to Daniel? So first thing in the morning, he gets up and says, Daniel, has your God saved you? And Daniel's like, yoo-hoo, yeah, I'm fine. Um, and... Uh, it says, the Lord has delivered me because of my righteousness. And so um, Daniel is taken out. And uh, all the people that conspired against Daniel and their families, including children, are all then thrown into the lion's den. And it says that the lions just broke their bones. They were just um, ferocious. So those are the three kings. Um, and... We're now going to talk about what can we learn from this.
Daniel was taken from the comfort of a theocracy, a place where the rule of God is sovereign. A place where life was ordered in such a way so as to bring glory to Almighty God. And then the very people who destroyed the Temple of Solomon and raised the city of David were now Daniel's fellow citizens. They were the people he had to live with. We live in a country which each day falls a little further from its Christian heritage, don't we? All of the understanding, the fruitfulness, the wisdom, the safety, family that comes from seeking God and obeying him is being eroded. And we are, as a nation, becoming what Paul calls futile in our thinking. We have foolish hearts that have been darkened, in Romans 1. We now no longer live in a God-honouring culture, but in an idolatrous hotbed of self-deifying fools whose only goal is to please their sinful nature. And not only is God's explicit will denied and disobeyed, but even the very fabric and sensibleness of nature is called into question. And like Paul says in Romans 1, not only that, but people encourage others to do the same. To avoid truth, to disregard biology, so that suddenly women can no longer win women's lifting competitions <laughs> because men are taking part who think they're women. I mean, it's, it's just a basic... Um, it's gone from disobeying God to being completely unable to navigate the world that we're in because up is not necessarily up and right is not necessarily right and it's just topsy-turvy. That's the world we live in. Now, it'd be quite easy. We would understand Daniel if he hated the people that were around him, wouldn't we? That they destroyed everything that he knew and loved. Maybe he might want to seek their demise, like, I don't know, poisoning their water sources or whatever. Or maybe just try to escape. It'd be quite easy for us also to despise our fellow countrymen or seek a new life. Um, elsewhere, away from the tyranny of sinful leadership and an intolerant generation which hates whilst vehemently shouting love. Daniel didn't, and neither should we. The first step Daniel had, had to make was to accept his new surroundings and not hearken back to the previous things. Just think of the Israelites out in the wilderness longing for the cucumbers of the Nile um, You've got to accept your surroundings that you're in. God has made you alive at this time for a reason. Just like Jesus in his incarnation wasn't going, you know, it's much nicer back there. <laughs> he was had to accept, take on himself the lowly position of a servant. So let us accept the fact that we live in a pagan culture and our fellow citizens don't understand us just as we find it hard to understand them. Next, Daniel sought to engage with his culture by learning its language and its history. We can do the same. We can learn to speak our culture's language. 
However, Daniel would not eat the rich food, neither would his friends. They distinguished themselves from the others by refusing palace food. We would do well to hold these two concepts in tension. So firstly, learning how to um, speak and engage with our culture and our generation without making unnecessary barriers between us and them. But secondly, guarding ourselves against worldly sin. James says that pure and undefiled religion is to look after the widows and the orphans and to keep oneself pure from the world. Later on in the same letter, he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. I think it's James 4.4. And learning this balance of connection and disconnection will help you to distinguish yourself without extinguishing your faith. If you conform too much to your society, your faith dies. If you're too different, if you're too remote, you'll have no effect on it. How else did Daniel and his friends distinguish themselves? Well, they were excellent, they were wise, their understanding came from the God of the universe, who's omniscient, all-knowing. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes people look to us as Christians and sort of like we're gurus or something, like we we know the mystical secrets of the universe. Um, It's funny that. Um, Other times people think that we're backward and bigoted, but, you know, um, sometimes people come to me and they, they see me like some kind of scientist would be seen if they were sent back 300 years like how do you know this stuff you're so young i mean we get it all the time don't we like you're so wise for your years you're like no i just i know god 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 knows how things work you know um either way our wisdom and our insight come from god and will be vindicated in the end we should be out there interpreting dreams understanding the times prophesying and being willing to speak to rulers truths that we know they won't like sorry I get off on that kind of thing (laughs) okay how else did they distinguish themselves by not bowing down to the idols you are allowed to refuse to appease the mob when pressured into a corner how cool is that just say no there used to be a thing for um, young people say no and phone Um, which was like, if someone offers you drugs, just say no, and then phone this number and they'll help you out. So say no, snap. This is is snap. So say no and pray. Like, (laughs) when people tell you to do something which goes against your beliefs, which goes against what the Bible says, what the church has believed for hundreds, possibly thousands of years, just say no. Don't do it. Don't be bullied. It's good. Let me say this more simply. Don't do things that are wrong before God and do do things that are right before God. Should we get a t-shirt with that printed on it? (laughs) So when others are gossiping maliciously, bless. When others are hating love, when others are bullying, rescue. When others are lying, speak truth. When others are divorcing, stay faithful. When others are aborting, celebrate life. When others reject, accept. When others break the law, obey it. When others make evil laws, break it for the sake of the law of our God.
Thirdly, they distinguished themselves by praying to their God and depending only on him. When I was at university for three years, I took no medicine at all. And I suffered regularly with debilitating migraines. And I thought that, um, I, I did it as a genuine act of faith in God. I thought, if I trust God completely, he'll heal me. And um, I eventually gave up when my mum begged me to take some painkillers um, one day. And my passion and temper were good, but I lacked wisdom. We should pray about everything. That's right. It's a good instinct. We should trust God for all our needs. We don't need to repudiate everything that the world offers and worldly solutions. And there isn't really enough time to go into this in depth. But if you want to talk to me about it, come and talk to me. But the conclusion I draw is um, from the end of Romans chapter 14. I think it's verse 23. It says, whatever you do, do it in faith. Anything else is sin. So if you take your pills, take them in faith. Faith in Jesus. And if you choose not to, do it in faith. Whatever you do in faith is not sin. It's good. So, coming in to land. We are in a war. And peacetime measures don't work. Our country has rejected God and has been given over to its own sinful nature, which thinks and acts stupidly. Doesn't love the poor or the needy. It's self-seeking. Doesn't exhibit the fruit of the spirit, but rather the fruit of the flesh. If you read Galatians 5, you get more on that. Too many of us are acting as if the temple was still working nicely and the Sabbaths being observed and the sacrifices are still being made. Like we still live in this Christian country. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. We are in Babylon. I'm not being political. I'm not merely pointing out... Sorry, I'm merely pointing out that the kingdom of heaven is very different to the so-called united kingdom. If you want to see out the rest of your days watching trashy TV or reading trashy novels or dredging social media, being jealous of everyone that posts how wonderful their life is, playing games or building your empire, getting more and more comfortable, believing lies about yourself, taking on the identity of the world, that's your choice. It's not good for you, but it is your choice. We're to refuse the rich food of entertainment and security, which draws us into a belief in ourself. We're to refuse that stuff and feed on the stuff that draws us into reverence for God and trusting in him. Jesus calls you closer to him, which means away from the world. Why? Because he's risen. He not only calls, but he also guides by having lived among us and shown us the way. And he not only guides, but he empowers by sending his Holy Spirit to live in us, giving us power to do what he did, not to get fat on the world's fancies. I need to be shaken by God today. I need to awake from my slumber, have my eyes opened. Keith Green once sang, the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. Will you join me in praying that we don't fall asleep? 
Jesus says that in the last days lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. Will you join me in praying that we won't grow cold? The church is meant to be a beacon of light, salt that preserves and brings flavour, but the darkness of the world has seeped into the church. That doesn't work. Light is meant to get rid of darkness. Darkness can't extinguish light. But that's how it seems. And that all that means is that the light of the church is grow, has grown dimmer. It needs to be brighter and brighter. As the darkness increases, so must the light of the church increase. Bless you. So this darkness has seeped into the church and the naff flavorlessness of self-serving has spoilt the life of the church. Let's return to God and be salty once more and bring light into the darkness. If your life is governed by misery, anger, depression, anxiety, then read these things as the signposts they are. You're going the wrong way. Fast, pray, and don't kneel to idols. And by God's grace, maybe he'll bring you back from the brink and lead you into green pastures of refreshing and reminding you of your true identity. Don't be like an orphan girl grabbing on to the orphanage bed when her true parents who love her are trying to take her home. Don't hold on to the old life. Don't be foolish. Realize that you are heavenly and the king above all kings is sent for you. We learn from the three kings of Babylon, NBD, that pride leads to death and humiliation. 500 years later, three other kings come from Babylon and bow their knee to Jesus. Let us now come before Jesus and kneel, humbling ourselves. Don't be embarrassed. It's not about you anymore. Release the idea that you have to protect your image. You don't. You're free to put Jesus first. Jesus said, and it's always a phrase that struck me as slightly odd. If you have a cloak, sell it. Buy a sword. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is asking us to toughen up a bit. The cloak represents comfort and the sword represents warfare. And so I would love for us to pray as a church. Should we stand and pray?